from News Talk 580-1059 KMJ, this is the Matty Report, Valley Views Edition. Now here's your host, Mark Kepler. California is about to undergo a sea change when it comes to addressing the issue of mental health. Governor Newsom's Care Course proposal is a framework to deliver health and substance abuse disorder services to the most severely impaired Californians, who often end up homeless or incarcerated without the treatment they so desperately need. What does the Care Course proposal entail? What types of services will it offer? And how will it differ from state approaches to address untreated schizophrenia and other related disorders? We'll ask an award-winning staff writer for the LA Times, Thomas Kerwin. We'll then talk to some folks on the front lines of the mental health crisis to get their take on what they think is right or wrong about the current proposal. Those conversations in a moment. Funding for the Maddie Report is made possible by grants from the California Emerging Technology Fund, leaders in the quest for digital equity. The James Irvine Foundation, committed to a California where all low-income workers have the power to advance economically. Fresno State Associated Students, Inc. Students serving students. BNSF Railway, moving our economy for 160 years. And the wonderful company. The Matty Report is also made possible thanks to contributions from Harris Ranch Inn and Restaurant and E&J Gallo Winery. From the Maddie Institute, the Public Policy Institute for the Valley's four public universities, this is the Maddie Report with Executive Director of the Maddie Institute, Mark Kepler. Welcome. Last year, Governor Gavin Newsom announced the Care Court program. That's the Community Assistance Recovery and Empowerment Act that's already been hailed as a fix to the state's broken behavioral uh, health system, and a road to, that's a road to recovery for those dealing with severe mental health issues. There are seven counties that are scheduled to begin the launch of that program on October 1st. The state's other 51 counties are going to be launching their programs in October of 2024. Our guest is Thomas Curran, uh, Kerwin. He is an award-winning staff writer with the LA Times. Um, he has written about some of the unknowns that California counties are going to be facing as they launch this mental health uh, program. So welcome to the Matter Report. Hey, Mark. Thank you very much. Glad to be here. Um, so listen, can you explain to folks who've heard about this care court uh, proposal, what is it in basic terms? Yeah, it's a good question. And I think it's really important that we try to shine a little bit of light on what the care court is. Um, for this point of our conversation, I think I'd like to call it the CARE Act, because that's the name of the legislation that was signed by Newsom in September that puts into play what seems to be a pretty major reform of the behavioral health laws in the state. As you and your viewers may know, in 1967, um, legislators in Sacramento revamped the behavioral health system in California. And for the last 50 years, has been, we've been living with the effects of the Lanterman Prentice Short Act. The Care Court represents the first major reform of that act, um, or I should say one of the major reforms of that act, and is designed to help prevent individuals from falling further into sort of the abyss of mental illness on the streets and in our communities. Um, it implements a court system to try to help bring individuals into treatment and will offer an opportunity for caregivers as well as families and, um, and roommates to bring people into the system. 
Yeah, and part of this too is it's including uh, court-ordered uh, stabilization medications. It's talking about wellness and recovery, uh, support, connection to social services and housing, lots lots of things. But yeah. here's a question that really comes up a lot, and that is, is this an infringement on individual liberties? I mean, how is self-determination supported by the CARE Corps program? Yeah, it's a good question. And, it's, and yeah, the CARE Act. And it's a good question because, of course, the CARE Act was contested by Disability Rights, California, and, and also the ACLU, um, the courts decided that the CARE Act should go ahead after that lawsuit was considered. But um, with all these bills and all these acts, when it comes to mental health and mental illness legislation, behavioral health legislation, it's always a balancing line between respecting the autonomy of individuals and their civil rights, and also getting treatment to people who are desperately in need of that treatment. The CARE Act does a couple of things, first of all, um, it relies primarily on voluntary um, compliance to a treatment plan that's going to be presented to individuals who need that care. And also, if you it may interrupt for just a second, I, excuse me, because I don't really the question here. So you, it has to be voluntary, but they're dealing with generally untreated folks. They're dealing with schizophrenia in this, on this range of schizophrenia, uh, mental health problems. How can they make informed voluntary decisions? I'm just... Well, not all people with schizophrenia are completely um, without their own sort of sense of uh, will and their sense of knowing what they need for themselves. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a, there's a large range. I mean, this bill is going to target people with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder. And there's a large range between sort of competency and incompetency when it comes yeah. to that diagnosis. Um, again, I think the, the, the caregivers that are going to be going out into the street and meeting with these individuals are going to hope that they can get voluntary compliance, um, persuasion. You know, we get you off the street, we get you into housing, perhaps we get you treatment. You're going to, and and these individuals may have a memory of what that was like, and they want to go ahead with that. If they don't, then they go into the court, and that becomes a different situation altogether. And that's where another. Well, let me ask you. Uh huh. No, I was going to ask what, what are the what are the key criteria for participating in the care court. Yeah. Act. So it, it's really basic where well, you have to be 18 or older and you also have to have a clinical diagnosis in one form or another of, of schizophrenia or schizoaffective disorder. So it's really targeting people who are really very severely mentally ill and trying to bring them into treatment. So what do you say would be the basic purpose of the Care Cork Act? I mean, the way I read it, I'm looking at it, it's like an ounce of prevent, prevention. We're trying to get it ahead of the problem before they go all the way to conservatorship. I mean, is that the way you see it? Yeah, I mean, it's it's yet another tool that the legislators are being offering counties at this point to help the, with individuals who are mentally ill on the streets here and in their communities. Um, it, like Laura's law that was enacted in 2002, assisted outpatient treatment. Care Court is just another attempt to try to be, give counties and, and behavioral health clinicians opportunities for bringing people in whom we see all the time that are in desperate need of help on our streets. Yeah. And uh, one, up next, we're going to talk about that. How do the care courts differ from conservatorships and other state programs for the mentally ill? Yeah. Exactly how they work in conversation a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Thomas Kerwin. He is with the LA Times. about. We're talking about the state's new uh, CARE Act uh, and what it'll mean for each county who has to implement these special courts. Uh, these courts are going to have the judges have the authority to order treatment of uh, plans for individuals with untreated schizophrenia and related disorders. So I'm just wondering, Thomas, um, how is the care court different than the, the current approach in California, namely the, the mental health uh, for conservatorship or, you know, that we talked about Laura's law 
uh, yeah. for outpatient treatment? How, how is this different? Yeah, so the, the most significant difference between Care Court, Care Act, and these other bills that you mentioned, other programs that you mentioned, is that um, the Care Act allows for family members and roommates to petition the court to get help for a loved one who is suffering from mental illness. Prior to the CARE Act, the only people that could, could bring treatment to an individual would be um, qualified professionals, psychiatrists, law enforcement officers, crisis team members. But this is gonna open up the door to family members. And I think it's pretty radical and pretty interesting uh, difference in expansion of the plan above other programs. Yeah, I think family members, you, know, you talk to them that, who have or dealing with this in their family are very frustrated sometimes that they can't get help to the family members that they're caring about. There's, you yeah. know, the system previous, this has been kind of problematic. So just to be clear about this, when people think that this CARE Act is just another type of conservatorship, that's, that's not a correct assessment, is it? Yeah, conservatorship is a different thing altogether. The CARE Act is just a form of getting people and encouraging people into treatment. One of the great sort of, what's important to emphasize is that the CARE Act is not mandatory treatment for individuals. Um, it's a voluntary program. They hope to bring people into court. They hope that the presence of the standing before a judge and in a courtroom with professionals around them, that will, that will ultimately persuade people to adopt a treatment program. If they don't want to adopt a treatment program, there is nothing that the CARE Act can do that will force them into treatment. However, if they refuse a treatment program, that may be evidence that they need conservatorship. And if they need conservatorship, then that kicks in the Landrum and Predis Short Act, which will then bring these individuals into mandatory holds for 15, uh, possibly 30 days in which conservatorship can then be arranged. Right, okay. Um, well, so can you talk, walk us, why don't you walk us through you know, the typical CARE Act uh, program? How does it work? Sure. So, so let's let's say an individual, a family member, has a child who's on the street, and and they want to bring care to that individual and start a treatment plan via the Care Act. Here, um, that individual will go to a particular courthouse in their county. They'll pay four hundred and thirty-three dollars as a petition filing fee. Um, they'll fill out the form. Hopefully, they'll get a little bit of help at the courthouse in filling out that form. That form will then go to a, the judge who will then determine whether that individual meets criteria for the CARE Act. If that person meets criteria for the CARE Act, then the judge will mandate that an assessment team go out onto the street and find that individual and hopefully persuade them to adopt to a care treatment plan that they're gonna to put together for them. If that person declines, then that assessment team is, is, will be able to bring that individual into the courthouse where the person will stand and be represented by a district um, a defense attorney and will be able to stand before the judge and be able to hear what the plan is for their treatment. And um, this is a program that will last for about 12 months, possibly extended for two years. And um, hopefully it will be a complete wraparound service for these individuals and help them get into treatment and get well. Yeah, one of the things that's kind of interesting when I was reading about this is that the, the Care Corps plan is really developed by county behavioral health uh, participants, they've got a care uh, supporter uh, who kind of uh, part of a team. Um, yeah. They got, got the defense attorney. I mean, there are a number of people there that provide protections for uh, for the individual when they're going through this program. And it is, I'm going to kind of stress, it is different than conservatorship. It, one of the things that they talk about conservatorship, the problem about, you know, it's rarely timely. Um, it's difficult to get granted. Um, right. The other things I've read is that, you know, 
it sometimes uh, it, it locks the locks the participant up. This is a this is a voluntary program that needs to really be stressed. Yeah, it's really important. It's important when I talk to behavioral health directors throughout the state. They basically want to make sure that people understand what the CARE Act isn't. It isn't a program to cure homelessness in the state. It isn't a program that, do, that provides housing for individuals. It is a chance to help the most severely mentally ill people who need a treatment plan and need to get help and get off the street if possible. Yeah, and I, but I think that we'll have certainly the um, tangential effects, the benefits of this program are going to help people who are homeless that otherwise with treatment wouldn't have to be homeless. And they can maybe with proper medication and treatment can put their lives back in order and, and be productive members of society. Absolutely. As we've all seen, there's such an intersection between mental illness and homelessness in the mm -hmm. state so that it's bound to have a residual effect on people who are living on the street. Yeah. 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 Well, up next, we're going to talk about how this care court is going to be rolled out statewide, how many people are expected to be treated in the program, and will the state provide enough money uh, to cover the cost to, various, to the various counties? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Thomas Kerwin. He's with the LA Times about the CARE Court Act. Um, there are lots of specifics uh, that need to be addressed, lots of issues that need to be considered. For example, how are the CARE Courts going to be rolled out? Um, can you explain how they're rolling out this program? Yeah, so the legislation required seven counties to get the CARE Courts Act enacted by October 1st of 2023. Um, and the, it was at that time when the bill was signed in September last year, then the other 51 counties would have another year to put into place. Los Angeles County did, however, step forward and, and they're going to be rolling out their plan on December 1 of 2023. So that's going to leave the other 50 counties until October of next year. I think it's believed that those other counties are going to try to get their, their programs up and started before they hit that deadline, however. Yeah. Okay, so, so what do you see when you're looking at this? What do you see as some of the challenges? The challenges are multifold. I mean, I think many of these counties have to figure out what the funding is going to be for the CARE Act to, be, to, to extend itself beyond the first year. Legislature pay, is paying for one year of this act, and I think counties are now wondering where the money is going to come from mm -hmm. to keep this program going for years down the road. Um, that money needs to go towards a whole raft of hiring that they need to do. There's a shortage of mental health and behavioral health clinicians in the state. Um, I believe that San Diego County is going to need to hire the numbers like 18,000 healthcare workers um, over the next 10 years wow. to meet what they anticipate this demand. Um, and speaking of demand, I think the big question that's going to hit everybody is how many people are going to come into the CARE Act and, and qualify for the, the treatment and the programs? This is a big unknown for many of the counties, and I think they're sort of waiting to see and trying to anticipate um, the volume of individuals who are going to be hitting the system um, starting October. Yeah, I was looking at that, and some of the people you just think, oh, just set up the system, it'll work. No, no, wait a second. You have to have clerks. You have to have... Uh, psychiatrists, you have to have defense attorneys, you have to have behavioral health yeah. clinicians, you have to have judges, you know, insurance companies are going to have to add people. I mean, you start adding up all the people that yeah. were needed to make the system work. This is a really large undertaking. Um, it's a significant bureaucracy that they've started and hopefully yeah. it's going to be effective. Yeah, it's interesting that. too. It um, does. Smaller, I was going to say quickly, smaller counties are facing that problem, perhaps greater than larger counties, because they don't have quite the hiring pool that larger counties have. So I don't know how Fresno County is going to be um, coping with this. 
Yeah, well, Fresno County's a little large. Some of the smaller counties, though, like maybe Kings County or, or some of those others, it's, it's yeah. going to be or Tuolumne, a really small county. They're going right. to have some real challenges. But um, yeah, it's just it's just very interesting. A lot of people, obviously, on on, on the, the right, the Republicans complain it's just, just another state mandate. You know, they're not providing enough support. Right. You know, launching a program and you know with no future funding, it's 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 a it's a common concern for a lot of state programs. Let me ask right. you that. Um, um, why these particular counties? They pick these seven counties to start, and it sounds like these counties yeah. are going to kind of be the uh, the guinea pig. They're going to kind of kind of work through the system, the process, create a template perhaps for the other counties to to follow. And also, it's kind of a little follow up. Why did LA County jump ahead? They didn't have to. Why did they? Yeah, the, these are good questions. I'm not sure if I'm completely clear on the answers, but I think the financial incentive speaks for itself. Um, the first seven counties were going to receive. 26 million, or they were going to divide $26 million among them to help get this program going. So that's seven counties giving $26 million for these programs. And then when the, when the rest of the counties come on board, all 58 counties will then be dividing up $31 million. So the financial incentive to be one of the first is clear. And I think that's where these early counties understood that, that would be advantage to it. Um, I think the state also might have been selective in the process because clearly the demographics of these seven counties are different. You have very large ones like Orange County and San Diego, and then you have very small ones like um, Tolony and uh, yeah. Stanislaus. Yeah, I think one of the things uh, point you also made about uh, there's no definitive count on the number of people that are going to be eligible for these programs. I think the state, right. what I've seen report is they're thinking 7,000 to 12,000. I've seen other report said that, no, 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 it's going to be much more than that. And we really don't know because we don't know how many families are out there. They're going to try to avail themselves of this. Yeah, that's exactly right. And I think that's what many of the counties are concerned about. When I talked to the behavioral health director in Orange County, she was telling me that they expect probably in the first year about 1,500 uh, petitions to be processed um, in the first year. Of that number, she's hoping that they're going to get at least, um, of that number, they expect 500 to drop out for not meeting the criteria of the CARE Act. So of the 1,000 that are remaining, um, they're expecting to have 700 that will go to court and 300 that are going to be voluntary to the treatment program. And, and, and by the way, the court dockets are already pretty impacted as it is. And they're going to create a new system here. But boy, you got to find the judges and the attorneys and all the rest of it. And I just want to, before we leave yeah. this session, I do want to kind of, kind of stress one point. You're talking about the money given to the seven counties versus the remaining 51. I did the math math on this. And the quick math on that is basically those first seven counties are getting in the range of, you know, three, four million dollars a piece. Those next 51, $600,000 on average. Yeah, exactly. The drop off is significant. Yeah. And I I guess they, I guess the state figures that the first seven counties are going to develop the protocols and the programs that are going to make it much easier for the other counties. What could go wrong, right? Right. Anyway, (laughs) up next, we're going to talk about the devil is in the details. What are some of the unanswered questions as we begin to roll out the Care Court uh, Act? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. We're talking with Thomas Kerwin. He is the award-winning staff writer of the LA Times. Um, he has written about the governor's new Care Act proposal. You know, some think this is going to be uh, really a godsend for families who are unable to deal or assist loved ones who are dealing with mental health challenges. Uh, Others think, on the other hand, say, well, you know what? They're a little worried that maybe these folks are going to be frustrated by not being able to avail themselves of the services under the act. 
there's a lot of practical questions going on here, and you raise a, a number of them in your article, and I encourage people to, to read what you've written. But you've said, you know, one of the questions you've asked is, who's going to serve the petition and transport the individual? Something very practical. Did you come up with an answer? Well, this is a good example of just how granular this act can be. I mean, legislation in Sacramento can pass a big bill and, and set everybody into motion, but it's for the behavioral health directors of these counties to figure out how to put them into place. And that was one of the questions that they raised. You know, do you let are the police departments, law enforcement can be the people that serve the petitions or behavioral health directors going to serve the petitions? There are a lot of arguments that can go back and forth between one and the other. And I think they're still and trying you can to work see, those out. And you can see potential conflicts of interest and, and all of that. Yeah. So yeah. let me ask you this. There's also this uh, dilemma posed by meeting this 14-day requirement uh, when applied to the homeless. Can you explain what the problem is? Yeah, so once a petition gets filed and the judge approves it, um, they, the counties then have 14 days to reach out and, and identify and, and interview and to assess that individual. Um, 14 days can be pretty difficult if that person's living on the street. Um, it means having to track them down. It means trying to figure out where they are and trying to have a conversation and build trust so that you can begin an initial assessment. For counties that don't meet that 14-day requirement, they, they're liable to be sanctioned, and that's going to be $1,000 a day. That's, so yeah, the counties have to that's, that's quite a kicker. Yeah, yeah like, exactly. And 14, think about that, 14 days to find someone and then get them to voluntarily go into treatment yeah. when homeless. I mean, it sounds like a pretty big challenge. Now, uh, Dr. Mark Gailey, who's the Secretary of California Health and Human Services Agency, has, has called the county's efforts, uh, quote, very promising, unquote. Um, yeah. You report, however, that county individuals, uh, county officials are telling you that the state may be moving too quickly. So, so who's right? Yeah, well, unfortunately, the counties don't have much choice at this point. I mean, they can they can quibble about how quickly they're having to put this thing forward, but they've got to move to the clock that was set by legislators and by the state at this point in time. Um, I think it's going to be interesting to see as the as the carrot gets rolled out, whether further adaptations and, and modifications to the legislature will be put into place once the more practical difficulties become more clear to the counties and to uh, the judges and the courts as they try to implement this thing. I think there is room for amendments that's going to make it a little bit easier for the other 50 counties to adapt and to respond to the requirements of the law. Yeah, and, and you think about, you know, Daryl Steinberg, a former uh, Senate pro tem, uh, was pushed, you know, mental health issues, the proposition, I can't remember the exact number, there are so many of them, but a proposition that supported mental health services. So there, this has kind of been a work in progress for a while dealing with this issue, and this is kind of yeah. the situation. Hopefully you're correct that they will, you know, do the feedback, do the evaluation, feedback loop, and then correct wherever, you know, there are yeah, any problems. Exactly. Let me end with this. We only got about a minute left in a second, but I want to ask you this. Sure. What's your overall assessment of, of this of this program? Do you think it's going to work as intended, or are we going to have these unintended consequences? That's the really big question, and that's what's so interesting about this legislation. I don't think we really know quite yet. Check with me in October, and I'll let you know. <laughs> yeah, or then later that, because, you know, these things, you have a tendency to roll out over a period of time. Yeah, exactly. exactly. I want to thank our guests. I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I, I was just going to add, I, I think what's interesting is we think about these laws. I think that probably in the first few years, it's going to be rolled out with the greatest amount of consideration and conscientious uh, application and, and sensitivity. But you always have to wonder what it's going to be like 10 years, 30 years, 40, 50 years down the road. And, and when you have laws that infringe upon people's civil rights, you wonder the whether history. this is going to open the door to something more grave or more promising. This yeah. is what time will tell.
Yeah, absolutely. The devil's in the details. I want to thank our guest, uh, Thomas Kerwin with the uh, LA Times for joining us. If you want to stay up in uh, local and state politics, you can sign up for our daily newsletter, the Maddie Daily, by logging on to our website at maddieinstitute.com. This is Mark Kepler for the Maddie Institute. Thanks for joining us. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ. Up next, we'll talk to a prominent retired Fresno attorney, Daniel Jamison, about his experience trying to help a loved one struggling with mental health challenges. We'll then talk to Michelle Doty Cabrera, the executive director of the County Behavioral Health Directors Association of California, to get her take on how the county's plan to go about implementing the CARE Act. Finally, we'll speak with Sacramento Mayor Daryl Steinberg, who was a leader in the California Senate from 2008 to 2014 and was a driving force behind Proposition 63, the Mental Health Services Act passed by California voters in 2004. What does one of the state's most influential voices on mental health reform think about the governor's CARE Court proposal? Those conversations Welcome. in a moment. This is Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. You know, nearly one in six uh, California adults has a mental health need, and approximately one in 20 suffers from a serious mental health illness that makes it difficult for them to carry out major life activities. The rate among children is even higher. One in 13 suffers from mental illness that limits their participation in daily activities. Not surprisingly, many families are trying to help loved ones struggling with mental health challenges. One is our guest, Dan Jamison. He's a, a retired local attorney who is uh, here to share his family's personal experiences. Welcome to the Maddie Report. Thank you. Glad to be here to help with this important subject. Yeah, and we really appreciate you, you coming on to chat with us about this. And our, you know, you've been very open about sharing your personal situation. Your brother uh, had a history of mental health challenges. Can you tell us a little bit about your family situation and how it changed over the years? My older brother is now deceased, but when he was about 23, he had a severe onset of schizophrenia, young adult schizophrenia. He was not a druggie or uh, had problems with alcohol or anything of that nature. Um, He was in high school, an outstanding leader. He was a favorite of all the neighborhood kids. He excelled in academics and uh, in sports and was admitted to Stanford out of high school. Wow. But this severe disease uh, laid him down uh, when he was striking out to be an adult. Uh, He went AWOL from National Guard drill, and uh, my family put out a all-points bulletin to try to find him. And about a week later, uh, he was found in Palm Springs. I was a junior in high school. This was 1969. And uh, we flew down to Palm Springs in a small single engine aircraft, myself and my mother and father. And I found Steve in a Palm Springs jail beating his head against the wall. He'd been found marching up and down in a children's park, and they had uh, taking him in. When we were flying back to Fresno in the small aircraft, he wanted to get out over Bakersfield and went for the door. My father grabbed him and, and held tight. We got him back to Fresno and uh, there followed about 11 months of psychiatric 
locked hospitalization at the Kingsview Hospital, which is no longer uh, around. And uh, with Thorazine, he stabilized somewhat, but he was unable to hold a job. And before long, he had to be uh, hospitalized again in locked care. And when he came out of that, uh, and it was a tough experience for him because he was hallucinating and saw his body eating his head, if you can imagine. Um, and he uh, then lived with my parents for about two decades uh, with Thorazine keeping him under control. But when my parents uh, had to move to senior living, we had to get him out of the family house of 30 plus years and into an apartment. Once he got into an apartment on his own, he stopped taking medication and uh, he rapidly decompensated to the point where he was an obvious hazard. Um, and I contacted the county and said, what can we do about this? And they said, well, we can't do anything unless he answers the door or we catch him outside on a 5150. But he was just a uh, tragedy uh, waiting to happen. And sure enough, uh, he was smart enough to avoid uh, answering the door. Uh, and sure enough, uh, he had newspapers spread all over his apartment floor and apparently hallucinating that he needed to kill bugs or something, he started a fire, which got into the newspapers all over the apartment floor, filled the apartment with smoke and into neighboring apartments in this large wooden complex. And uh, the fire department was called. He refused to let them in. They called the police. They broke down the door. They were able to put the fire out. He resisted the police and he re resisted arrest. And once he was brought into the criminal justice system, they, we also got him into the uh, county's behavioral health system which once he was in that system worked uh, well for him uh, in coordination with the criminal authorities. We were able to keep him in locked care uh, and that was credited towards his prison time. And he uh, uh, then eventually was able to move into a group home where he lived the rest of his life uh, under a conservatorship of the person for most of that time uh, but the county discontinued it over my objection after uh, some time, but he still continued to take his medications, fortunately. Uh, well, so the, the previous system doesn't sound like it worked all that well for you. What about uh, Governor Newsom's new Care Corps proposal? Do you think that's gonna be an improvement in, in the situation, uh, status quo? What are, what are your thoughts on that? I see some problems in the Care court approach. It's, it's a step in the right direction. But first, uh, before anyone can be brought into the care court process, just like when we were trying to get Steve into the, what's known as the Lan Lanterman Petra Short Act process back in uh, the uh, 1980s or so, uh, then there has to be personal delivery of the notice telling them that they are being brought into that process and giving them an opportunity to respond. He uh, 
would have done the same thing. He would not have answered the door. And uh, unless he was found outside, uh, he would have avoided service, uh, personal service, which is required. The other thing that in his case, uh, the care court requires to get it started an affidavit of a behavioral health provider or documentation that he has had a minimum of two intensive treatments, uh, one of which had to occur within the past 60 days. And he he stayed in his apartment and wasn't found outside. So the other issue you were talking about, you and I have talked about is taking medication. If, if a person is supposed to be taking medication and refuses to do it, um, does anything happen to them under this new care court's proposal? The care court law does not provide for enforcement of the medication orders. And one might think that the law would uh, increase the number of persons for conservatorship of the person, like what has eventually helped my brother Steve. But the fact that a person refuses the medication cannot be considered as a factor by the court in moving a person from the care court to conservatorship of the person. And there's also uh, no place for people to go. One of our major problems is we need to fund capital construction of psychiatric hospitals for longer term psychiatric care and the Mental Health Services Act provides for this funding, but there's been a regulation by the Department of Healthcare Services that has misled people into thinking that the uh, law does not permit funding for locked care. They so have recently made it clear that it does. Yeah, you're bringing up a lot of points that we're going to go over in a moment. We're going to take a closer look at the governor's care proposal. But thank you very much for sharing your personal experience with us, Daniel. Really appreciate it. Uh, thank you for doing this. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Mann Institute. You know, the state has been investing heavily in overhauling the state's mental health system for some time. One of the most recent initiatives is something called the Community Assistance Recovery and Empowerment Courts, or the CARE Courts. Proponents call it a major transformation in the state's approach to treatment, a way to divert those struggling with severe mental health or substance abuse issues from car incarceration and homelessness. Is it really that good? Our guest is Michelle Cabrera. She's the Executive Director of the County Behavioral uh, Health Directors Association of California. Welcome to the Matty Report. Thank you so much for having me. You know, it's, so, it's, so people are saying that this the governor's initiative, this, this CARE Courts, represents a pretty significant change in the state's approach to this problem. How would the CARE Courts actually work? CARE Court is different from what exists today in several ways. Um, first, it focuses the court's interventions, and, and we're talking about a civil court process here, not criminal court. Um, but it, it focuses on a narrow set of mental health diagnoses. Um, it opens up the county behavioral health safety net to the entire community, regardless of insurance type. And so um, that includes people with private insurance would have new kinds of access to the county behavioral health safety net. And it uses the power of the courts to compel individuals to accept treatment as well as to compel the county safety net to provide treatment. And it does this by imbuing the courts with new powers to sanction and even hold the public safety net in receivership if it does not comply uh, with the court's orders and requests. Yeah, that's kind of one of the issues is that, that word compel, right? Critics 
all the care courts say that, you know, people going to care, they're much more successful if they go into voluntary treatment as opposed to, you know, mandatory treatment. Are they right? Do they have a, a point here? The debate around forced treatment has been around for a long time within, um, you know, the treatment of mental illness and substance use disorders. And it certainly was put front and center with the care court debate. Remember that care court narrowly targets individuals with psychosis, including those with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorders. We anticipate that most people will be brought into care court, meaning that someone else will petition the court to ask that they receive services rather than the individual requesting services on their own behalf. Because this process brings them in and as well as the county safety net before the court, it does raise questions about whether services will be treated as entirely voluntary and whether the array of services that will be required um, as a result of this process are voluntary. Uh, what we know from research is that in the long run, voluntary treatment services are much more effective and perceived coercion can be detrimental to what we call therapeutic alliance. And that's really your trust in and satisfaction with the services that individuals are receiving. So if they um, you know, feel more satisfied with the kinds of services that they're getting, they have that stronger sense of confidence with their providers, they're more likely to retain the gains over the long run. You know, there's the other criticism is that, you know, we're pushing all these people into the system, but are there the necessary health and housing resources to make these care courts actually work? I mean, are there enough psychiatric facilities and staff available? Yeah, well, I think that there are there are two components here, right? The first one is housing. And on housing, I think it's important to say that the Newsom administration has invested more in um, expanding the state's investments in housing than any prior administration in recent memory. Uh, the county behavioral health safety net was heartened by the passage of the most recent budget of 1.5 billion in bridge housing funding for individuals with significant behavioral health needs. About a billion of this one-time funding is for transitional or bridge housing that is intended to prioritize care court participants. That said, um, in the case of Bridge and, and the other housing investments, by you know, for the most part, these are one-time rather than ongoing housing uh, investments. And Care Court itself does not actually produce new housing options beyond what's already available in the community. So think about it this way. A court can prescribe either housing or treatment, but um, if it doesn't exist in the community or if it's not accessible to our clients, then it will be a prescription that we can't fill. And as of now, there's no real straightforward answer for that. Um, on the sort of service delivery side, certainly there are significant gaps in what exists for um, acute behavioral health treatment throughout the state of California. And again, uh, we have seen one-time investments in infrastructure, but uh, a real significant need for ongoing investment in both the workforce as well as uh, treatment options. Yeah, we're going to see if this ends up turning into an unfunded mandate that, that counties complain so much about. Well, up next, we're going to talk about homelessness. That's one of the, the big issues intertwined with mental health challenges. Will court, care courts actually help solve that problem? That conversation in a moment. This is the Maddie Report. 
Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Manny Institute. You know, an estimated 20 to 25% of the U.S. homeless population suffers from severe mental illness compared to 6% of the general public. The combination of mental illness, substance abuse, and poor physical health makes it difficult to maintain employment and residential stability. As a result, it would appear that better mental health services could combat not only mental illness, but homelessness as well. We're talking with Michelle Cabrera. She's the executive director of the County Behavioral Health Directors Association of California. You know, Michelle, it's my understanding that last year your organization conducted a survey uh, regarding the number of people experiencing homelessness who sought mental health services. What did you find? Well, what we found is that county behavioral health agencies were fairly effective at um, encouraging and, and succeeding in bringing individuals with serious mental illness into treatment on a voluntary basis. Um, counties throughout the state of California reported that they brought 15,000 individuals into voluntary treatment. However, we could only house roughly 7,000 of them. We were not able to house the remaining 8,000 due to either a lack of housing or other housing barriers. So I'm, I'm wondering, you know, one of the questions here is uh, in terms of the care courts, they're allowing judges to order other government governmental agencies to prioritize uh, care court um, participants for housing. Do you think that's a workable solution? Well, you know, I'm curious to see if this will work. Many of the housing barriers that our folks encounter are structural. For example, federal HUD rules uh, often prevent our clients from getting prioritized for housing, particularly if they're coming out of mental health treatment or incarceration. Nothing in care court will allow judges or local housing providers to override federal law. Other common barriers include things like credit or background checks. So it will be part of the experiment of care court to see how that plays out. You know, there are also, I guess, annual reports required uh, under this care court proposal. But I'm wondering, how are they going to define success? Um, and what are you going to be looking for? You know, for our part, we're curious about several elements of the civil court process that is care court. First, we want to know how many petitioners are there and where will these petitions be coming from? For example, will we be seeing cities seeking to address the homelessness crisis, families with privately insured individuals who can't get access through their private insurance or on the open market, or all of the above? We also want to understand how this may change outcomes for our clients. Typically, it can take about 40 or more touches or interactions to voluntarily engage someone into services. This will really truncate that process. So it's not clear if respondents will be responsive or receptive to this approach. And then finally, how will this change our relationship with courts, if at all? Yeah, yeah those are all pretty important questions. I'm wondering, so if you were designing the system, and what kinds of things would you like to see to, to, so these care courts could work more effectively, efficiently, uh, and fairly, frankly? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned, the timelines for engaging our clients are extremely tight. So given the current workforce crisis, we think it's going to be really, really challenging to meet what the court expects there. A huge component is also this concept of accountability for both individuals with serious mental illness and the safety net that serves them. It gives judges the power to sanction counties for failing to meet their standards. And this really runs counter to the I collaborative. Mean, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, but isn't it like $1,000 a day or something that, can, that it can assess counties? 
Correct. And yeah. uh, courts could even hold counties in receivership, which means they could take yeah. over their entire system if they're unhappy. And this really runs counter to the collaborative nature of our existing relationship in specialty courts. We do, you know, mental health court, homeless court, drug courts today, but those are mostly criminal courts where we're on the same page and partners about trying to help people. I'm worried about how this dynamic could upset that partnership and especially would like to see that sanctions piece removed altogether. Finally, housing and homelessness. If this ends up being the primary focus, I'd like to see the law amended to actually guarantee long-term sustainable, stable housing options and to hold those private plans accountable for their part in failing to meet the needs of individuals with serious mental health. I think you just gave the legislature a to-do list. <laughs> yeah. I want to thank our guest, Michelle Cabrera, the executive director of the County, um, the County Behavioral Health Directors Association of California. Up next, one of the most influential voices on mental health reforms, both as the former leader of the California Senate and now current mayor of Sacramento, Daryl Steinberg. His thoughts on the California court proposal and whether or not it's going to help address the state's mental health challenges. This is the Maddie Report. Welcome back. I'm Mark Kepler with the Maddie Institute. Now, local officials across California are facing mounting pressure to show progress curbing homelessness a pervasive problem that polls indicate is a really a top concern among residents. Our next guest is Daryl Steinberg. He was first elected mayor of Sacramento in 2016. He's been dealing with the issue of homelessness for some time. He's also championed mental health initiatives. He was leader in the California Senate from 2008 to 2014. And he was a driving force behind Prop 63, the Mental Health Services Act passed by the voters in 2004. The goal of Prop 63 was to fund mental health services with a 1% income tax uh, per, on personal income of folks making over a million dollars a year it generates anywhere between two to four billion dollars a year for such programs welcome back to the maddie report it's great to be with you it's been too many years mark but it's really nice to be back it, it has it has um you know it's been reported that in sacramento county 34 percent of the unhoused residents surveyed reported having psychological problems or issues um, you've been a decades-long advocate for mental health uh initiatives you've called the care court proposal groundbreaking why well, first of all, I think it's important to recognize that homelessness has many causes and there is not a one size fits all solution. And increasingly in this fragile society, there are a lot of people who just plain aren't making it economically. High housing costs, COVID was obviously a major disruption, people not getting enough hours in their work. And so uh, a lot of people are becoming homeless, unsheltered in part because they can't afford uh, to live. And that requires a different set of solutions, including significant investments in prevention and early intervention to keep people who are fragile and housed, housed instead of unsheltered. For the people who are chronically homeless, who have been out there a long time, the vast majority of them undoubtedly have significant underlying issues, mental health and often substance abuse issues in addition to a variety of physical health maladies that um, are, are disabling. And so I believe CARE Court, uh, the Governor, Governor Newsom's CARE Court, is a very far-reaching and potentially um, uh, game-changing proposal if it is implemented in the right way. Yeah, here. that's what I wanted to ask you. And, yeah. you know, some people are concerned about the funding. Is there enough money here to actually make this thing work? Could they use Prop 63 funding to help support the care courts? They could use Prop 63 funding for the services portion. But I'm sorry, it took a while to get to actually answer your question. Here's the reason why I think it has such great 
potential. Because for the first time, it states in law, at least for the six or 7,000 people who will benefit when, when somebody files a court petition, um, that the counties in this instance have a legal obligation to actually provide the services and the care to people. And that people have a responsibility then to avail themselves and to accept the services. The fact that their proposal, at least in a beginning way, links rights and a right to mental health care with an obligation to accept it, I think is a window into what would be even bigger if it were done uh, uh, in, e in an even broader way. So I think it's a really important start. So um, there might be some Prop 63 money for non-capital projects to implement uh, the care courts. What about Medic Medicaid? I mean, that's been around. Doesn't that already provide a safety net uh, for, for the homeless, people with mental health issues? There is another. There are two significant sources of community mental health funding now in California. One is Prop 63, the Mental Health Services Act. It's about $4 billion a year. The other is, in fact, Medicaid. Um, the existing Medicaid funding is in the billions, but now there's a new opportunity. Again, the governor and the legislature have brought forward this idea of CalAIM, and we've successfully obtained a waiver from the federal government to be able to use federal Medicaid dollars and the state and county match to actually provide more than health care to people, to uh, provide housing, to provide employment supports, to provide uh, the case management and the encampment engagement that is so necessary in order to help get people out of these situations in the first place. So that is a new and important source of funding. You know, we always need more money. Right. But in my view, Mark, um, money is not our fundamental problem today. The real challenge is systems reform. How are we going to get cities and counties to work together better? How are we going to make the health plans um, actually serve the population that is most vulnerable and most in need. And that's why I believe that ultimately we need to move to some form of, of a legal right to care, a legal right to housing, uh, and then a legal obligation for people to accept it. Because when the law requires us to coordinate, to work better, to meet timetables, uh, to meet production numbers, I think there's a much better chance that we're going to get there. And that actually, and I'm sorry for interrupting, but that actually has been something that people have talked about. You've really put your finger on something important. I want to thank uh, Sacramento Mayor Daryl uh, Steinberg for being with us today. This is Mark Kepler for The Man Report. Thank you for joining us. The Matty Report, Valley Views Edition, is a public affairs partnership between KMJ Radio, Cumulus Media, and the nonpartisan Matty Institute, providing the Valley with valuable insight and analysis on politics and important public policy issues. This is KMJ.